This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more books from Gary North that are free and downloadable on PDF format, please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks. The title of this book is Millennialism and Social Theory, published by Institute for Christian Economics, copyright Gary North, 1990. Chapter 4, Pessimillennialism. In history and time on earth, God is preparing a people to whom he can make known and who will be able to appreciate the boundless riches of the glory of his grace, and from whom he will receive an appropriate measure of response. Such a response can only come from those who, having ceased to consider their own personal salvation as the chief end of life, pass their time here on earth as the willing bondservants of Christ, with their eyes fixed upon the stupendous consummation towards which all history moves, and in the achievement of which they must play their own humble but necessary part. This part can be effectively performed only by those who have attained some intellectual maturity and have made earnest efforts to understand the revealed will and purposes of God, much of which is couched in the form of predictive prophecy. Roderick Campbell, 1954 Christian Reconstructionists, as both postmillennial and theonomic, have from the beginning challenged the two rival dominant eschatological theories, premillennialism and amillennialism, pessimillennialism, as Nigel Lee has identified them, both of which deny that Christianity will be dominant culturally or any other way when Christ returns physically to bring his judgment. The Church supposedly will not succeed in fulfilling Christ's commission, Great Commission, during church history, baptizing and discipling the nations, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20. Both of these millennial views are also intensely antinomian in their modern formulations, and, as I argue in this book, also antinomian in principle. I mean by antinomian that the defenders of each pessimillennial system deny the continuing authority of the Old Testament case laws in the New Testament era. The fundamentalist tradition has been dominant culturally in American evangelical circles. The Calvinist Reformed tradition has until recently dominated the realm of scholarship in evangelical circles, with Lutheranism contributing some material in Bible exegesis. Lutheranism has always been amillennialist, while 20th century Calvinism, heavily influenced by the Dutch, has also been amillennialist. In recent years, neo-evangelicalism has combined Arminianism, mild theological liberalism, and mild theological conservatism, pluralism, and a narrowly ecclesiastical Calvinism into a curious but unstable mixture of social concern coupled with an explicit denial of the possibility or desirability of biblical law-based solutions. Because Christian Reconstructionism is a philosophy of social activism, it has had to confront the fundamentalists whose dominance in 20th century American evangelicalism has crippled most attempts at Christian social reform. The only major exception to this rule was the post-World War I passage of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, which outlawed the manufacture or sale of alcoholic beverages, and which was repealed in 1933. Prohibition is almost universally acknowledged to have been a social and political disaster. This was the last politically successful crusade by American fundamentalists. They had considerable support from the humanistic progressives and statist power-seekers. They did not achieve this alone. 
It is the premier 20th century American example of the alliance between the escape religionists and the power religionists. Simultaneously, because Christian Reconstructionism is also an intellectual movement, it has had to challenge the amillennialists and the neo-evangelicals. In short, Christian Reconstructionists have had to fight a two-front war. This theological war is not merely a two-front war eschatologically against two rival millennial views. It is also a two-front war judicially against two rival views of God's law and his historical sanctions. Theonomy and postmillennial eschatology cannot be separated theologically. Covenant theology necessarily involves a specific theory of God's law and God's sanctions in history. The biblical covenant model is an unbreakable, self-consistent unit. But to accept this statement as fact is to adopt a uniquely biblical view of history, society, and progress, a step that few Bible-affirming theologians are willing to take. When even Greg Bonson denies this unity, it is not surprising that the historical sanctions section of the biblical covenant, civil covenant, point four, is rarely discussed and never affirmed as continuing in New Testament times by the vast majority of those who call themselves covenant theologians. Premillennialism Historic premillennialists, meaning non-dispensationalists, are few in number. A comparative handful of these few premillennial scholars have sought to produce works demonstrating their social concern ever since the publication of Carl F. H. Henry's book The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, 1947, which can be said to have launched the neo-evangelical movement. Yet not one published book outlining a comprehensive and explicitly biblical social theory has come from any historic premillennialist in the post-World War II era. As far as I can determine, none has come from any premillennialist ever. Reverend Francis Schaeffer is the best example. His works are intellectual in tone, but he never attempted to offer a positive alternative to the prevailing humanist culture that he so eloquently dissected. He wrote intellectual history, literary and art criticism, and apologetics, but not social theory. Reverend Schaefer was politically conservative, although this was seldom made clear in his books, and he never defended this conservatism biblically. In this sense, he was like amillennialist philosopher-apologist Cornelius Van Til, who taught Schaefer ap- apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary, 1935-37. to Unlike Schaefer, most of the other contemporary premillennial authors who have been concerned with social action have been political liberals of the Wheaton College, Christianity Today, InterVarsity perspective. Trendier than thou, Christianity. They have not been willing to admit publicly what dispensational premillennialist Tommy Ice freely admitted in a debate with Gary DeMar and me. Quote, premillennialists have always been involved in the present world, and basically they have picked up on the ethical position of their contemporaries. Unquote. This is what R.J. Rushdoony and I had been saying about premillennialists for a quarter century before that debate took place. Dispensational premillennialists have tended to be politically conservative. They usually agree with the social, political, and economic views of the Christian Reconstructionists. They object only to our Bible-based, Old Testament law-based methodology. They prefer not to discuss why they agree with our conclusions. For them, they would have to show how they arrived at their conclusions, which they cannot support without appealing to either to secular humanist conservative thinkers or Roman Catholic conservative thinkers. The neo-evangelical premillennialists, mostly liberals, 
have generally regarded as their ideological colleagues not the redneck fundamentalists and political conservatives, but rather the politically liberal professors who taught them in state universities and other humanist institutions of higher academic certification. Neither group has shown that the Bible supports its position. Is Christian social theory relevant? Second, is it possible? The premillennialists make social theory irrelevant by asserting the progressive impotence and external defeat of the church and Christian institutions prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ to set up an earthly millennial kingdom. But far more important for the development of Christian social theory, this perspective, being antinomian with respect to God's covenant law, denies the existence of God's culture-wide sanctions in history, at least prior to Jesus' millennial kingdom on earth. As I argue in this book, this anti-sanctions perspective makes impossible the development of a specifically biblical social theory. Because the modern premillennial dispensational traditional tradition has not been interested in scholarship in general, its spokesmen have not been expected by the movement's own members to provide a biblical social theory. All they have had to do is voice their approval of the U.S. Constitution, free enterprise, the nuclear family, and the American civil religion. But the amillennial tradition is different. For one thing, it has been more oriented toward European thought and culture, in which it has had its historical roots. For another, it has been far more interested in scholarship. This has been especially true of the Dutch Calvinist wing, which sometimes imitates German scholarship in its rigor and prolixity, e.g. Hermann Ritterboss. The question arises, what about amillennial social theory? Does such a thing exist? Amillennialism. The amillennialists share two key viewpoints with the premillennialists. Antinomianism with respect to the authority of the Old Testament case laws and historical pessimism regarding the cultural efforts of Christians in history. Historically, the Lutherans have admitted as much. They are amillennial. Luther was an amillennialist and self-consciously an ethical dualist, asserting a radical dichotomy between Christians and pagans with respect to their need for civil law. Christians do not need civil law, Luther insisted, let alone Old Testament civil law. Only pagans need civil law. Now observe, he wrote of Christians, these people need no temporal law or sword. If all the world were composed of real Christians, that is, true believers, there would be no need for or benefits from prince, king, sword, or law. They would serve no purpose, since Christians have in their heart the Holy Spirit, who both teaches and makes them to do injustice to no one to love everyone and to suffer injustice and even willing death willingly and cheerfully at the hands of everyone. End quote. Given such a view of civil law, it is understandable why there has never been any attempt by Lutheran scholars to develop a uniquely biblical social theory. From Luther's colleague Philip Melanchthon until today, Bible-believing Lutheran social commentators have relied on some variant of Stoic and Roman Catholic natural law theory in all discussions, social and political. The Calvinists have adopted their approaches. Grammar, Structure, Symbol A contemporary example of this systematic denial of God's historic sanctions, especially in the realm of civil government, is a book by a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, Richard L. Pratt, Jr. He gave us stories, the Bible student's guide to interpreting the Old Testament narratives. Professor Pratt does not even mention the Word Covenant until page 285 of this nearly 500-page book on the Old Covenant. 
He outlines the five-point covenant structure on page 286, but does nothing with it. He does not offer a single example of how this model was used in any covenant, old covenant narrative, nor does he mention the prophet's use of it. He suggests no application of the covenant model in society, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. His only other reference to the covenant, but not its five points, is a brief mention of major covenant events in the days of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. He does not say what these events were. He then implicitly abandons covenant theology for what he calls the organic model and organic developments. But when stripped of its judicial, i.e. covenantal, foundations, as Pratt clearly insists that it should be, social organicism becomes the worldview of Roman Catholicism, philosophical realism, and traditional secular conservatism. Organicism is an alternative to covenant theology, not an application of it. Yet all of this is presented to the reader as an exercise in biblical hermeneutics by a Calvinist covenant theologian. Calvinistic, yes. Covenantal, no. Yes, God did give us many stories. The questions are, what kinds of stories? With what moral? With what structure? Leading to what action, both personal and corporate? Pratt does not say. He is subtly attempting to substitute a symbolic literary interpretation of the Bible for the traditional grammatical historical approach. The problem is, Neither of these approaches alone tells us what the theology of the Bible is. The war between the two camps goes on. When it could be resolved by settling the neglected issue, the theological structure governing the narratives. What is this structure? The biblical covenant model. The medieval trivium reflected the tripartite division of scriptural interpretation. The trivium was grammar, logic, and rhetoric. There is good evidence that the very development of the child's mind as he becomes an adult is tied closely to this structure. The Bible expositor must carefully deal with the grammar of each text, but not to the exclusion of the underlying theological structure or its symbolism, literary framework. Similarly, the examination of the subtle symbols and allegories of the scripture, the rhetorical component of the texts, must not be attempted apart from both grammar and theology. To ignore both grammar and theological structure leads directly to the allegorical methodology of the Roman Catholic Church that the Reformation challenged. What both the grammatical historical school and the wild blue yonder symbolic interpretation school reject is the idea that the Pentateuch and the Book of Deuteronomy provide us with God's master plan, a five-point theological structure. They resent the Procrustean bed of the covenant model preferring instead other text-stretching beds, such as the six loci of 17th-century Protestant scholasticism, or the five points of Calvinism. While these can be derived theologically from the whole of Scripture, they are not found in the actual structure of any biblical text. The five-point covenant model is. Common Grace Cornelius Van Til, the Dutch-American Calvinist philosopher, was a defender of what I have called common grace amillennialism. There are two general schools of thought within this movement, Van Til's and Meredith G. Klein's, Van Til's colleague at Westminster Theological Seminary. Van Til's view is self-consciously pessimistic. Klein's is officially neutral with respect to progress in history. I categorize these rival views as 1. Bad news for future Christian man, 
and two, random news for future Christian men. The bad news school tends to be more politically conservative. Hold the fort, boys, though generally not non-committal in public. The random news school tends to be politically liberal. Let's shoot over the attackers' heads, and more likely to be outspoken. First, the bad news. Quote, but when all the reprobate are epistemologically self-conscious, the crack of doom has come. The fully self-conscious reprobate will do all he can in every dimension to destroy the people of God. So while we seek with all our power to hasten the process of differentiation in every dimension, we are yet thankful, on the other hand, for the, other, for the day of grace, the day of undeveloped differentiation. Such tolerance as we receive on the part of the world is due to this fact that we live in the earlier rather than in the later stage of history, and such influence on the public situation as we can affect, whether in society or in state, presupposes this undifferentiated stage of development. End quote. Quote. Van Til's position is clear. As history develops, the persecution of Christians by the reprobates increases. The good get better while the bad get worse. The good get less influential while the bad get increasingly dominant. Everyone becomes more self-conscious and spiritual darkness spreads. Christians should therefore be thankful that they live today rather than later. We are tolerated today, he says. Later we shall be persecuted. This is the traditional amillennial view of the future. The amillennialists of the Dutch Calvinist Common Grace school of thought are different from the Lutherans. Unlike the Lutherans, who are ethical dualists, the Dutch Common Grace amillennialists have repeatedly asserted both the moral necessity and the intellectual possibility of developing explicitly Christian alternatives to humanist thought in every area of life. This is the world and life Calvinism of Abraham Kuyper. Their problem is this. They have yet to describe in detail just what this uniquely Christian social theory is. Also, they have not identified those biblical passages from which such a comprehensive social theory might be developed. Theirs has been a strictly negative intellectual and social apologetic. They have tried to beat something, modern humanism, with nothing specific. This movement is subdivided between political conservatives and political liberals, with liberals dominant, especially in print. The political conservatives, like premillennialist Francis Schaeffer, have contended themselves with writing books on the evils and threats to freedom from modern humanism, e.g. H. Evan Runner, H. Van Rysen. The liberals, like the politically liberal, neo-evangelical premillennialists, have recommended the bankrupt solutions, bankrupt economically, intellectually, and politically, of modern Keynesian economics, as well as modern political pluralism, e.g. the Toronto-based Institute for Christian Studies and Wedge Publishing. Neither side has been able to show precisely what the Bible specifically requires of society, since this would require an appeal to the Old Testament case laws, which both sides reject as no longer judicially binding in the New Testament era. Therefore, they have no plan of action or social reform. A representative statement of the social theory of common grace amillennialism is Bob Goodsword's, quote, A program of action drawn up to carry out a blueprint evokes the impression of a short-term realization of objectives. What follows, therefore, presents no program of action, end quote. quote. This statement appears on page 188 of a book with only 249 pages of text, 
and follows a lengthy attack on both capitalism and Western civilization's idea of progress. This is typical of the Duivirdian movement, all, dyna all dynamite and no cement. It disappeared from the Christian intellectual scene in the early 1980s. It had never enjoyed very much influence outside of Christian reform circles. The Problem of Two Leavens These common grace Dutch scholars and their North American academic disciples have all been amillennialists. As amillennialists, they believe that Satan's earthly kingdom and influence will expand over time until Jesus Christ comes with his angels in final judgment. This assertion of the cumulative, visible triumph of Satan's kingdom in history is inherent in all amillennialism. This view of New Testament era history defines amillennialism. Amillennialism, as with premillennialism's view of everything that takes place prior to the millennium, is essentially a reversed form of postmillennialism. Postmillennialism for Satan's kingdom. The idea that there can be an optimistic amillennialism is difficult to take seriously. Even the barest outline of such a theology has never been offered. Any amillennial scheme must proclaim one of two positions, either linear histor history downward into public evil, Van Til's view, or ethically random historical change in a world presently controlled by covenant breakers, Klein's view. Perhaps some energetic and creative amillennialist will make the exegetical attempt someday, but so far optimistic amillennialism is simply soft-core post-millennialism for amillennialists still in transition. Despite the tr structural cultural pessimism built into all amillennialism, Common grace amillennialists often insist that God's kingdom also develops and even expands in history. But how can both kingdoms expand simultaneously? It is covenantally inconsistent to argue, as those amillennialists do argue, either implicitly or explicitly, that Satan's visible kingdom expands in history while only God's in invisible kingdom expands. The biblical concept of these rival kingdoms is this, rival civilizations. Each is both natural and supernatural. Each is a covenantal unit. If Satan's kingdom has both a spiritual and an institutional side, then so must God's. How can one kingdom, civilization, expand if it does not progressively push the other out of history's cultural loaf? Yet common grace amillennialists insist that each kingdom expands. Evil leaven wins, despite Matthew 13.33. They can defend this two leavens perspective only by playing games with language. They belatedly admit in the back pages of their books that Satan's earthly covenantal representatives will progressively impose their negative sanctions against Christians as history advances. This admission makes ludicrous the idea of God's kingdom in history. Amillennialism proclaims a kingdom whose designated representatives cannot bring the king's sanctions in history which is a denial of any judicial connection between God's kingdom civilization and history. Yet it is precisely this that amillennialists proclaim, a kingdom whose only predictable institutional covenantal sanctions in history are ecclesiastical and familial, never civil. This makes God the lord of a declining percentage of churches and families, but not of history. As Bonson says, what they object to in postmillennial writers is the inclusion of external, visible, this earthly aspects within the scope of the kingdom of God in this age. Calvinistic amillennialists cannot easily avoid the covenantal language of continuity, victory, and lordship. Such language is basic to the heritage of Calvinism, 
since Calvinism in the formative 16th and 17th centuries was generally post-millennial. Amillennial Calvinists still use this optimistic language, yet they deny the kingdom's progressive, visible manifestation in history. They make their position clear. Quote, there is no room for optimism. Toward the end, in the camps of the Satanic and the Antichrist, culture will sicken and the church will yearn to be delivered from its distress. End quote. They proclaim God's victory in one passage, yet they deny almost all cultural traces of it in another. They sound a battle cry for historical defeat. This is schizophrenic. Things are not what they seem. Consider Revelation 5. This passage pictures the resurrected Christ in heaven. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5, 8-10 The text is specific. The elders in heaven will reign upon the earth. Because they were in a disembodied spiritual state at the time of John's revelation, they can be said to reign on earth in the future in one of four ways. One, physically, during pop dispensationalism's future millennium. Two, representatively, during post-millennialism's progressive judicial millennium. Three, post-historically, after the final judgment, thereby making the whole passage irrelevant for history. Or four, symbolically. This passage presents a major dilemma for the amillennialist expositor. He cannot appeal to either of the first two exegetical options and still remain amillennial. Yet he does not want to adopt the third, since this section of the book of Revelation is generally believed by commentators to apply to history, not to the post-resurrection state. His only other choice is to interpret the Revelation 5.10 symbolically. Such an appeal to symbolism also destroys the passage's relevance for history. William Hendrickson, one of the premier amillennial expositors in the 20th century, cannot gracefully avoid this problem in his commentary on the book of Revelation. He barely tries to escape. He begins with this presupposition, quote, The theme of this book is the victory of Christ and of his church over the dragon, Satan, and his helpers. The Apocalypse intends to show you, dear believer, that th things are not what they seem. End quote. Things must be very different from what they seem to Mr. Hendrickson, since he is an amillennialist and therefore he sees the history of the Church as a progressive defeat for the Gospel's social and cultural influence. He recognizes that Revelation 5.10 really refers to Christians on earth, and not simply to the twenty-four elders and the four angelic beings in heaven. Obviously, Christians and angels in heaven cannot be defeated, yet Christians on earth do appear to be defeated. He asks, Do they seem to be defeated? In reality, they reign. Yes, they reign upon the earth, 5.10, in heaven with Christ a thousand years, 20, verse 4, in the new heaven and earth forever and ever, 22, verse 5. This is theological mumbo-jumbo. Departed Christians can be said to reign literally in heaven, fine. They will reign literally after the final resurrection, also fine. But how, in the name of grammar and consistent usage, can they be said in the same verse to reign on the earth in history? 
we shall reign on the earth. Surely not literally. Hendrickson is an amillennialist, not a dispensationalist. The answer is found in point two of the biblical covenant model, representation. This can be of two kinds, symbolic, non-historical, and judicial. The postmillennialist says that the earthly church militant represents in history the rule of the heavenly church triumphant. The church triumphant prays for the historic success of the church militant. Quote, How long, O Lord? Revelation 6.10a The church militant progressively becomes victorious in history, so the saints in heaven can be said to rule on earth. But the amillennialist cannot admit this. He adopts instead the language of symbolic representation, non-historical. He identifies those spoken of in the passage as appearing to be defeated, which is not in the actual text. Christians in heaven surely are not defeated. Because the elders in heaven reign, the Christians on earth are said to reign too. Heaven's victory cannot serve as a meaningful guide to history. The victory is merely symbolic. History is institutionally irrelevant. The book of Revelation becomes an enigma. Quote, the apocalypse intends to show you, dear believer, these, the, that things are not what they seem. End quote. If this seems confusing, it is because amillennialism is confusing. Either Christians will reign on earth and in history, i.e., pre-second coming, or they will not. If neither we nor our covenantal successors will ever be able to, in history to apply the Bible-specified sanctions of the heavenly king whom we represent on earth, then Christians cannot be said ever to reign in history. The language of reigning would then be both misleading and inappropriate. The issue here is simple. Christians' possession of the judicial authority to impose negative civil sanctions or the private economic power to impose both positive and negative cultural sanctions. Amillennialists categorically deny that Christians will ever exercise such widespread authority or influence. Thus, amillennialists have yet to explain this eschatologically crucial biblical text from Revelation. It speaks of Christians who reign on earth. Utopianism without heavenly, without earthly hope. It does even less good to encourage the optimism of your readers by proclaiming, as Raymond Zorn does, that, quote, to the extent that the world is Christianized by the church's efforts, it exhibits to that degree at least the all-inclusive power of Christ by which his victory since Calvary is brought to actualization, end quote. If you do not really believe that the church ever can achieve the Christianization of the world in history, Yet this is standard theological fare among amillennialists. A few pages after the ingeniously qualified phrase, to the extent that, was added by the author to a sentence displaying considerable verbal optimism, he added, quote, Jesus came to found a kingdom that was not of this world, end quote. The implicit move toward an inner, higher, victorious mysticism here should be obvious. Although it has never been obvious to Calvinistic amillennialists, unlike medieval Catholic amillennialists. Zorn then tells us that a tyrannical one-world state appears to be imminent. This state will over be, be overcome by Christ only at his return in final judgment. That is, only with the end of history, a cosmic discontinuity, can Christians expect deliverance from political tyranny. Some victory. Then what is the Christian's task in history? Zorn is straightforward to submit to the powers of political evil, since they have won the political battle and possesses lawful authority. 
The church, quote, must loyally give to the state whatever is necessary for its existence, end quote. The church is simply a watchman, testifying to the evils of the day. Its grim historical task is to bear witness to a kingdom which will contract throughout history, but which will then triumph in the discontinuity of final judgment. Zorn therefore calls Christians to the utopian task of calling other men to participate in building a universal kingdom that will not in fact become established in history, i.e., kingdom building in a world of continual external visible defeat. He calls this task, quote, bearing witness to a bearing witness to and directing toward their true utopian goal, end quote. And the critics call postmillennialist utopian. The Church's continuity of progressive visible defeat in history is called victorious only because of a final, divinely imposed discontinuity that ends history. The kingdom triumphs no place, utopia, on earth. Such a view of history is not congenial to the development of social theory. But is it utopian? Utopian causes have always attracted followers by promising the possibility of achieving the seemingly impossible sometime in the future. A utopian movement has at least implicitly promised a future cultural transition to a better world, despite the seeming discontinuity involved in getting from here to there. Utopian movements present a description, however, however theoretical and however historically remote, of a better world to come in history. They are utopian in the sense that there is no clear-cut systematic program to get from this world to the promised world. There is no program of continuity, i.e. cultural or political reform. Utopian causes tend to become apocalyptic, waiting for a history-transforming, society-transforming, discontinuous event. Compare this with the amillennialist attempt to recruit and motivate dedicated followers on their uniquely anti-historical premise that the Bible's promised better world can be achieved only at the end of history, after the great discontinuity of final judgment and the abolition of history. They make no attempt to describe the daily operations of this future post-resurrection world. This is reasonable. The Bible doesn't. What can we say about a sin-free, curse-free future society? Not much. Until the post-resurrection world comes, they teach, this world will get worse for Christians. Nevertheless, Christians are told to be salt and light to the doomed world, laboring mightily to bring in the kingdom of God on earth, even though God supposedly has not given judicial guidelines to his people in the New Testament era. This is utopianism without historic fulfillment, apocalypticism without earthly hope. Only a future apocalyptic event can bring the new world order its visible incarnation. Such a view destroys any legitimate confidence in the earthly fruits of covenant-keeping man's labor. Common grace amillennialists affirm the expansion of Satan's kingdom in history. They also affirm the simultaneous expansion of Christ's kingdom in history. To make way for the leavening process of both kingdoms, they define Satan's kingdom as relating to civilization and Christ's kingdom as relating to the human heart, the church, and the family. The leavening process of Satan steadily displaces the traces of Christian culture until, at the very end, the Christians are facing complete destruction. Then Jesus will return to judge the world and put an end to church-engulfing or church-stalemating history. The Ambiguity of Amillennial History Calvin Seminary professor Anthony Hokema, in his chapter The Meaning of History, 
favorably cites Hendrikus Burkhoff's 1966 book, Christ, the Meaning of History. Burkhoff writes, quote, There is no equilibrium between cross and resurrection. The shadows created by Christ's reign are completely a part of this dispensation, while the light of his reign will remain dim to the end. End quote. Christ, the shadow in history. Then what does this make Satan? Burkhoff and Hokema are far too astute to raise this thorny but obvious question. Hokema then goes on to defend a fundamental assertion of amillennialism, the ambiguity of history. Quote, Here again we see the ambiguity of history. History does not reveal a simple triumph of good over evil, nor a total victory of evil over good. Evil and good continue to exist side by side. Conflict between, con- conflict between the two continues during the present age. But since Christ has won the victory, the ultimate outcome of the conflict is never in doubt. The enemy is fighting a losing battle. End quote. Notice the ambiguity of his phrasing of the issue. The good does not simply triumph over evil. Why simply? Evil does not totally triumph over good. Why totally? This is not clear. There is some kind of hidden eschatological agenda underlying such peculiar phrasing. What is very clear, however, is that his final sentence is misleading. The enemy, given the amillennial outlook, is indeed fighting a lost cause, but he is surely not fighting a losing battle. He is fighting, at the very least, a long-term historical stalemate, and probably an overall cultural victory. Under the most favorable possible interpretation, Hokema is promoting a version of the stalemate religion. This is the religion of cultural ceasefires rather than Christian victory. Hokema understands what this means for history. The absence of meaningful progress. Quote, Can we say that history reveals genuine progress? Again, we face the problem of the ambiguity of history. For every advance, it would seem, there is a corresponding retreat. The invention of the automobile has brought with it air pollution and a frightful increase in highway accidents. Progression is paired with retrogression. End quote. Let us not mince words. This view of history is Manichean. While the Manicheans profess faith in an endless struggle between good and evil, the amillennialists modify this view only slightly with respect to history. This view leads either to an acceptance of ethical dualism or permanent frustration. 1. The acceptance of common ground natural ethics for the world with a different personal ethics for Christians, dualism, or else 2. The assertion of a unified Christian ethical system that will never gain widespread public acceptance in history, frustration. What is nothing short of astounding is that Hokema, after having presented Manichaeanism in the name of Christianity, then declares, quote, The Christian understanding of history is basically optimistic. End quote. How can he defend such a statement? Simple, by adopting deliberately misleading terminology. Quote, the Christian believes that God is in control of history and that Christ has won the victory over the powers of evil. This means that the ultimate outcome of things is bound to be not bad, but good, that God's redemptive purpose with the universe will eventually be realized, and that, though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. End quote. The key word here is ultimate. This is a crucial amillennial weasel word. It means not in history. Previous example, quote, the ultimate outcome of the conflict is never in doubt, end quote. But he began his introductory statement by defending Christian optimism regarding history. 
All his defense proves is that Christians do have a legitimate optimism regarding the final judgment. This is hardly the basis of a successful challenge to modern humanism. It surrenders history to covenant breakers. I will say this as plainly as I can. If anything like this were done by a profit-seeking business in the United States, it would be illegal. Under federal law, there is a truth in advertising rule. Specifically, this prohibited tactic is known as bait-and-switch. A firm advertises a product at a low price, but it does not actually have this advertised product. Once the customer is lured into the showroom, he is pressured to buy a different product at a higher price. Bait-and-switch has been the most commonly used tactic in selling common grace amillennialism to Christians in the 20th century. This practice is unconscionable, but it is so familiar to its academic defenders that it is not even given a second thought. Common grace amillennialists call Christians to a cultural battle, yet they also assure these potential recruits that there is no hope in history. The efforts of Christians to make the world a better, covenant-honoring place are inescapably going to be thwarted as time goes on. This, Zorn says, is, quote, bearing witness to, to and directing toward the true utopian goal, end quote. But this utopianism is a utopianism without any possibility of fulfillment. It is therefore not truly utopian. It is at bottom apocalyptic. It waits on God to end history, not for Christians to transform history through their covenantal obedience. It calls for activism and encourages passivity. It is at bottom schizophrenic. Shared Perspective Historical Discontinuity Norman Geisler, a dispensationalist and a defender of Thomistic natural law theory, has pointed to the shared perspective of premillennialism and amillennialism with respect to time. The issue, he says, is their common assertion of a fundamental discontinuity between the present order and the coming kingdom of God. He correctly observes that, quote, most amillennialarians look to the future return of Christ and to his eternal reign as discontinuous with the present. Hence, they do not view their present social involvement as directly related to the emergence of the future kingdom of God. In this respect, amillennialarians are more like premillennialarians and have thereby often escaped some of the extremes of postmillennialism. The central shared doctrine, then, is the doctrine of the Church's historical discontinuity with the world beyond Christ's second coming. On this point, Geisler is correct. Pessimillennialism denies any meaningful continuity. There is no question that Geisler is reacting to Christian Reconstruction in raising this issue. He clearly recognizes the inescapable connections linking biblical law, God's historical sanctions, millennialism, and social theory. Having affirmed premillennial dispensationalism and therefore Having denied the New Testament continuity of Old Testament law, he sought a means of affirming even the possibility of social theory. He adopted natural law theory. This is consistent. Having denied the only means of developing Christian social theory, biblical law and God's historical sanctions in enforcing this law, he adopted an officially intellectually and ethically neutral social theory. Here is his theoretical problem. There is no neutrality. Very few Christian social commentators or theologians have been willing to follow Geisler's lead. Those who are professionally trained philosophers know that nothing remains of natural law theory in a post-Kantian world. Most Christians have not been trained in philosophy, 
but they have at least picked up from popularizers like Francis Schaeffer the idea that there can be no neutrality. The problem they face is the same one that both Schaeffer and Van Til faced. Once we scrap natural law theory, what is left? Kantianism? But this leads to Barthianism and Neo-Orthodoxy. Existentialism? This is clearly a dead end. There is only one consistent worldview that is based solely and self-consciously on the Bible, theonomy. They would rather die than accept this answer. So they wind up promoting some rejected humanist fad that is based on modernism. What else? But which does not initially appear to be. The few dispensationalists who read such things may prefer National Review or possibly The American Spectator, while the neo-evangelicals may read New Republic, but it makes no fundamental difference. All sides indirectly adopt humanism as the basis of their social philosophy. They cannot defend their social and political preferences by an appeal to the Bible, so they cease making systematic appeals to the text of the Bible. It is just too embarrassing. The result is painfully obvious even to them. Nobody takes them very seriously. Quite frankly, nobody should. They have neither the political clout to scare anyone holding office, nor the philosophical clout to propose a consistent, viable, biblical alternative. It is not that they are short on brains. They are, however, woefully short on biblical presuppositions. They do not command much respect, even within their own circles, when they announce, Thus saith the Wall Street Journal, or Thus saith the New York Times. Conclusion When Christians do not view their present social involvement as possessing a fundamental continuity with the emergence, i.e. development or extension, of the kingdom of God in history, they have little incentive to develop a specifically Christian social theory. If they also deny the fundamental continuity of Old Testament law and God's sanctions throughout history, they will be sorely tempted to revert to the supposedly universal and common logical categories of Stoic and scholastic natural law theory, as Geisler has done. Lacking both the temporal incentive for dominion, God's positive sanctions in history, and the judicial tools of dominion, biblical law, they deny the legitimacy of Christians' dominion in history by means of the biblical covenant through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Both premillennialism and amillennialism deny that there will ever be a Christian civilization prior to Christ's second coming. In saying this, both viewpoints promote an antinomian outlook. Their defenders usually deny the continuing validity of the Old Testament case laws, but even when the case laws are not denied, these theologians deny the continuing presence of God's historical sanctions, sanctions that they freely admit were attached to his law order in the Old Covenant era, at least in the case of national Israel. But God's covenant law without God's predictable historic corporate sanctions is like a nail without a hammer. It is useless for constructing anything. A few premillennialists and amillennialists have offered very cogent criticisms of modern humanist culture, but these critics have never offered a uniquely Christian alternative to the humanism they reject. This exclusive negativism has the effect of discouraging their followers. This lack of a legitimate cultural alternative has persuaded most Christians to shorten their time horizons. They lose hope in the future. Present Orientation If there is no cultural alternative to humanism available in history, then the only reasonable Christian response is to pray for either the rapture, 
dispensationalism, or the end of history, amillennialism. Historic premillennialists and post-tribulational dispensationalists believe that the millennium will come only after Christians have gone through the Armageddon and the Great Tribulation. I have no idea what they pray for. Premillennialists and amillennialists share a commitment to a coming cosmic discontinuity as the Church's great hope in history. Deliverance from on high, and in the case of premillennial dispensationalism, deliverance to on high. Again, citing Norman Geisler, quote, Hence they do not view their present social involvement as directly related to the emergence of the future kingdom of God. In this respect, amillennarians are more like premillennarians and have thereby often escaped some of the extremes of postmillennialism. This affirmation of a coming cosmic discontinuity cuts the ground from under the Christian who would seek to discover a uniquely biblical social theory. It also undercuts the incentive for social action. Social action becomes a holding action at best and a kamikaze action at worst. The Church is believed to be incapable of changing history's downward move into cultural evil. Social action is therefore adopted on an ad hoc basis, solving this or that immediate local problem. Effective Christian social action supposedly can accomplish little. Therefore, it requires neither a long-term strategy nor a systematic concept of ethical cause and effect. Political power, not ethics, is viewed as historically determinative. Power is seen as a necessary evil today. Christians are supposedly never to exercise political power in the church age. Either they cannot or should not exercise it. Possibly both. The result is predictable. The absence of Christian social theory. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.